Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 289 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome! In this episode I chat to Ian Cofino of Afterburner Studios about the action-adventure roguelite game Dreamscaper. I really like this game. It's It asks difficult questions and pitches it in a way in a very sensitive manner which we'll expand on when you listen to me chatting to Ian from six weeks ago. Shall we do that? Shall we listen to me from the past? Chris? If you'd be so kind. Ian. Chris. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, so there's, there's long and short answers to that. So I'll start with a short one, which is my, my name's Ian Cofino. And uh, right now I make video games. Uh, I make indie games. Um, and then I, I guess, should I just jump into the longer answer to that? Or is there, there should we well, go into different dir- directions? Well, there is question. I can replace pr- it with how did you make your start making video games? So if that, if that feeds into that, which normally does, I've found many guests just flow into the second question before I asked it, which is perfect. Like, how do you know? It's obvious. It's obvious <laughs> response, isn't it? And you can feed into your long answer by actually answering the second question as well. So knock yourself out, Ian. Sure. Well, you know, like you had mentioned um, before we started recording, you know, it's about the minutia, right? So um, even with this answer too, it's, I, you know, I make games, uh, but my... Uh, my path to making games was quite uh, circuitous. So I started as a uh, traditional like print designer, uh, and I got um, a Bachelor of Fine Arts. And then I moved into motion graphics and filmmaking, and I made a documentary um, about uh, the fighting game community. Then after that, when I was in LA, I was doing more kind of freelance and, and motion graphics work before I landed in um, San Francisco, and I was working at uh, Visual Concepts. They make NBA 2K. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that game. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but uh, well, yeah, sports games are a whole beast entirely, aren't they? But uh... Uh, absolutely, and and that was you know it was a great that was my first opportunity in the games industry, uh, and you know it, it kind of came up by happenstance uh, because I was looking for work, and and they uh, found. Uh, my work, and they're looking for someone with my skill set because a lot of um, a lot of the UI and the menuing 
it lends itself to a more traditional motion graphics um, uh, presentational style. You know, something you'd see if you were watching soccer, basketball, or sorry, football or basketball. Um, so we're bilingual uh, here. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I just I just moved to London, so I'm I'm also trying to you know immerse myself in the the language. Okay. Yeah. It's really yeah the the whole stressing of different vowels. I mean, the trickiest one is the word minotaur. Yeah, there's a minotaur. Interesting. So most, you know, you say minotaur, it's not. It's you stress the eye. It's minotaur. Thankfully, it doesn't come up in conversation all that often. But only when you're playing D and D, it suddenly does. Oh, (laughs) well, you've got a bunch of minotaurs. What is that? (laughs) Anyway, exactly. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean, you're right. The, The visual graphics on. I mean, one fed the other, didn't they? The sports things, they, sports became more video game-like, or one was feeding the other. The whole visual design history of that is, personally, I find it quite fascinating how, because um, they, were, they were a visual spectacle, and the, the whole graphics and the swooping stuff happened about 20 years ago, I think, and suddenly they, they decided to make it more, even more, I mean, the cutaways. They were just, mm-hmm. you look at them now, it's just like, I'm sorry, I'm on a fairground ride now? What's going on? This big, the big shield appears across the screen of the team you're watching, and then another shield appears and it swoops around. And there's, there's more graphics on the, the screen than there are there's games sometimes. But. Well, and you're right; it does kind of feed into each other because when I was leaving 2K, they were doing things in the actual NBA that were very similar to what um, uh, things that they were doing with the game, where they were doing projections on the actual court, uh, and and you know these kind of like very elaborate. Uh, visual graphics that almost seem lifted from games. Yeah, yeah, very strange. Uh, very strange. So, so after I, I worked at Visual Concepts for three years, and that was a great education. Uh, I got a lot out of that because we were shipping a game every year. Uh, but I also uh, kind of hit a, a wall with um, how much I was learning and the kind of challenges that were there. So I was looking to do something different, and I ended up at this uh, startup technology slash gaming company um, called uh, Outpost Games. So I was there, I think, in maybe 2015, 2016. And I worked there for about three years before, unfortunately, it, it went under. Uh, but the the company, they were doing uh, very different. It was, uh, they're making this game called SOS, which was this social uh, survival game, uh, a la, uh, uh, what's the, Survivor? The TV show Survivor. Okay. So there's a lot of of like social engineering and dynamics where you only X amount of people could escape from the island. All you know, 16 players get dropped on an island. Three three people can escape. So you have to form ad hoc teams, and it's a lot. It was a lot of um, kind of social dynamics that end up coming out of that that feed into the game itself. So uh, along with that, there was a platform that I was working on uh, called Hero TV, um, and that the platform was it, it, we were kind of at. at at the beginning of the interactivity that you see now on Twitch. So we were trying to build a platform that leveraged audience interactivity and crowd interactivity to create kind of a, a, an arena or stadium feel while watching a game, which very cool idea. There's a lot of interesting stuff to go into there, but un- unfortunately, you know, just uh, there's a combination of factors that didn't end up working out. And then uh, I had happened to meet my other two partners who I'm working with right now at Afterburner Studios, uh, Paul Svoboda and Robert Taylor, and they were at Outpost Games. And uh, all you know, as all this was collapsing, it was uh, a good time to kind of reflect and, and talk about what we were interested in doing. And then that's where we came up with the idea to try to uh, do our own thing. 
Right, and then here you are. Here we are, yes. 2020. What a year. Uh, but no, here we are with, uh, with Dreamscaper, which is what you're here to talk about, Ian, uh, and as well mm-hmm. as still your background and stuff. So thank you for your story history. And it's not uncommon for guests to talk about how they came via a circuitous route through to the realm of uh, the medium of video games. Mm-hmm. And it's not me me being pretentious. It is a medium, everyone. And uh, the, um, the film and um, sort of animation... A lot of people come from that field and find themselves in video games because it's a it's a it's a medium that covers many other forms. Storytelling, mm-hmm. of course, definitely with Dreamscaper, but also visual arts, huge on that. Sound design and scoring, of course. All of that. And it's like it's just, and yet you hear of musicians spending years just making an album. <laughs> They're just making music, whereas you're making music, story, an interactive experience, visuals, all of this. To to to, and you just think, and you know, people go, "Why is it taking so long?" Really, you have to Mm -hmm. ask that. You know, and that's also why it's such an achievement Mm. when all those pieces come together at a high level, because it's so hard, right? It's so hard to do each of those things because you can be a master. In just one area, and that's your whole lifetime. So to uh, bring people together to create something where you have a high quality bar across all these different, or you you do things in a smart way uh, across all these different um, uh, trades is is quite challenging. Indeed, but despite that, you do make things. I do, yes. And despite the uh, the, the sheer amount of effort required to make things, um, as a as a creator. And this is the the infamous third question, everyone. Here it comes. I have to ask this, but uh, you can ask this one personally, or you can ask it on behalf of Afterburner Studios. It's entirely up to you. But what do you believe are your biggest influences? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have this one locked and loaded because it's it's one of those things that influence changes over time, and things kind of. Uh, Kind of move in and out of your life, so I can I can I'll answer I think for both. I'll um I'll start with the easier one, which is uh, Dreamscaper and what we've been influenced by and what we're what we're doing with it. We were we were, we wanted to make a role like from the very beginning, so we were very influenced by that space, uh, and especially I would say Binding of Isaac, uh, which just incredible system design, all these pieces that again come together to create a piece of whole that uh is that you can spend you know tens hundreds of hours inside of. Um, so that there's a lot of you can. It's very. It's you know. It's right on the sleeve. It's it's very obvious when you play Dreamscaper that we have a lot of the same. Basically, the kind of the formula, the format of the game. Just like if you were to make a genre movie or something, it's the format is there, and we're, we're kind of building our own thing on top of it. So some of the other things that we we grabbed inspiration from to to pull these together to do our own take. Um, I I fell in love with uh, God of War, the newest one. Uh, just the obviously. On so many levels, it's it's a masterpiece across all these different. Again, we're talking about these different uh, trades, um, but we we drew a lot of inspiration from the combat. Uh, this this more strategic, um, uh, methodical combat, but uh, that that still felt really good. Still, and there's a lot of room for improvisation. Uh, and then on in terms of like system design and other things that we're doing, uh, you know, we were looking at uh, games like. Uh, Persona or Fire Emblem, because we have a whole waking world section to a dreaming world section that 
uh, has this relationship building element to it. So we were looking at games where we really enjoy the story aspect and we really enjoy uh, you know, deep mechanics that feel good and, and how do we couple those together. So, I mean, you're right about Body of Isaac, a magnificent game, although the subject is somewhat traumatizing when you read about what it's all about. and all mm-hmm. uh, um, But on a higher level, you actually are influenced by the craftsmanship of others and the craftsmanship of making of excellent games um, through design and also by accident, which is sometimes just as, just as valid. In fact, mm-hmm. the, 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 they both, you know, like, what is this work? I don't know, just keep going at it. Oh, yeah. It <laughs> and uh, it's best not to think about it too much, otherwise, you know, then you end up overthinking, overanalyze it, and then then it d- 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 dissolves. Or, um so uh yeah and also you know you you've been influenced by the works of others and standing on the shoulders of giants is not a good not a not a bad thing at all in fact all of us do it all of us do it mm-hmm. and uh to to recognize the uh what you described there is great because you can actually look at it objectively and go well look at this why does it work and because of that mm-hmm. you can then build off of that and make something just as and also more than interesting because you're taking mm-hmm. it in a different place. And you've definitely done that with Dreamscape. And one of my questions towards the end, I don't want to spoil it for everyone, but uh, towards the end, I'm good, there's some aspect of the game that needs to be addressed. Uh, and I would like to know, uh, certainly on the, the story side, you said you mentioned like Persona 5 and stuff, or the Persona games generally, which are, mm-hmm. I, I believe are classics. You know, they're up there with some of the most established, and the God of War as well. But then again, whenever I think of God of War, I always regress back to the original PS2 game. So no, I shouldn't, because the new one is very different. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, almost um, like two different uh, franchises. They are. They feel like it's like, okay, well, this is still, it's like the Tomb Raider games. Like, that's the ones from 1995, and here's the ones in 2013, and they're very different beasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've rebooted it. But uh, I've got a lot, a lot of fond feelings towards, fond memories of the original games, of course. But yeah. Um, just to be in contest, everyone. It's the new one, not not the old one, where you just run around yelling Aries with "Why have you forsaken me?" <laughs> um, yes, not not. I mean, and like you said, I, I love you know Devil May Cry and and the old God of War, uh, Bayonetta, all these games that are these fantastic hack and slash games. Um, and there's definitely inspiration in my own you know fighting games the, on my own side. But yeah, for this game in particular, we were we were trying to go for something that felt a little bit more modernized in the hack and slash uh, arena. No, definitely. And there's also aspects of um, shmups in there. Mm-hmm. Gradius. Yeah, uh, like, you know, this was something that we, we were like, okay, let's combine all these different things. And yeah. then I had played, uh, because we had been making this game now for about two years, uh-huh. I hadn't played uh, uh, near uh, Automata. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when I played it, I was like, "Oh wow, there's so much here that is very similar in a cool way to yeah. what we're doing." Where they kind of they'll, they'll shift perspective on the screen and, and jump between, um, yeah, having that, that shoot 'em up style and then the hack and slash style. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's we'll, we'll delve into that later because I've got another question. This one's even more difficult than the last one, but it's not nebulous. It's quite quite direct. Ready? Here we go. Yes. What developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Yeah, for me, well, so I'm sure that both Rob and Paul have different answers, but for me personally, um, 
it's uh with without question it's super giant games <gasps> we've um, had them on the show lovely people uh, that's fantastic yeah i mean the the it, there's something about having now having worked in studios of, of varying sizes having worked in larger studios having worked in, in you know mid-sized studios and now in the smallest studio which is the three of us and um uh, so, uh contractors that we work with the it's i think some a couple things I admire is that they're able to again. This goes back to what we were talking about with craftsmanship. It's they're able to uh, perform on a high level across all their games in all these different areas, which is very very challenging to do. So you have a, a package that comes together um, that feels like this beautiful cohesive whole, and it's hard to to nail each of those sections uh, in games. So I think that's that's one aspect of it, and I also just from uh, a business perspective, what they're what they've been able to do, and and even recently how they've they've had learnings after you know quote unquote failures. I I, would, I don't think you'd consider Pyre a failure necessarily, but it's it was something that wasn't as financially successful as they would have liked. So they thought about it and they came back and they were. Um, uh, they took a shot at the roguelike genre and they're, they're they saw that that was popular in the marketplace and they think they thought they could put their own spin on it. So that's where you have Hades and they, they did it as, and you know, th- which I, I believe is, is really the future is, is, is early access, right? Developing alongside your community, you de-risk things, you make a better game. Um, so for many reasons, I, I admire them and their, their working style um, and their business acumen and, and uh, the craftsmanship. Yeah, um, I was about to mention Hades, but you beat me to the punch. Well done, sir. <laughs> magnificent game. Pyre is also excellent, or ultimately it's it's rugby. It's fine, but mm-hmm. I did say that to to them and I went, yeah, Chris, it's it's rugby. Well done, well spotted. <laughs> no, no one else really knows this, but yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> um, but uh, and um, Transistor, which I did, you know, it's, it's just you really have to get your head around that combat of that game, and then then it flows. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, and yeah, and again, there's so much room for for improvisation. As a player, you can play it in so many different ways. Yeah, and that's really lovely because it offers. How can I put this? It credits the player with some intellect and some creativity. Uh, and mm-hmm. when a game does that, it's uh, it's very rewarding. And uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Do that. You're right, and they also have a. Not a brand. I'm not going to use that word because that, that they have a mark, a stamp, a, a, a thing. Uh, the games can be con- the content of the the theme might be very different, different worlds, different realities, but it still reeks of oh, this is a super giant game. You can just mm-hmm. see it a mile off. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a certain style to it, and you know that comes from, of course. Um... Uh, the music and the art and uh, the the camera, all these things kind of, you know that this is a super giant game. I do remember attending a talk given by them. It was a 10-year anniversary at PAX West last year. And uh, it's lovely. It was just like, no egos. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know, we kind of make it up as we go along. Aren't we all, really? But that was their, (laughs) they they just found themselves the just of this lovely creative force. Um, that uh, people are um, drawn to. So it's lovely. No, good answer. <laughs> Thank you. Last question of the first half. So you made it. Well done. Um, <laughs> is um, I have to ask this because this is a podcast about video games. So we've got to ask it. What are you playing right now? Uh, right now, I'm jumping between a bunch of different things. Okay. Um, my uh, my brother gifted me Monster Train, so I've been playing that. Good game. Um, yeah, I, I really like great. Card games, good stuff. 
I, yeah, I played Slay the Spire for many, many hours. So this yes. is, you know, another similar, but it's with its own unique spin. Uh, it's quite enjoyable. So I've been playing that. I just recently finished um, uh, Doom Eternal, which right. I, I enjoyed quite a bit. And uh, it, to me, it's like it, it it does harken back so much to the old Doom and the level layouts and the pace of it. Uh, and, and just looking through it, I can all, you can almost see how things are were designed and pieced together for it to, to become this really uh, fun, fast-paced, you know, basically like a puzzle shooter. What, what things do you prioritize? What do you do next? Um, so I've been a, it looks like a first-person shooter, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. It's something else. It's like a weird dance where you're having to set risks every section, every encounter you have. Like, well, I'm going to need ammo, so I'm going to have to eviscerate this thing really aggressively and quite violently to get the ammo from it. Yep. <laughs> interesting. Sorry, I interrupt. Will you carry on? Uh, I'm yeah. I'm just trying to think if there's there's anything else that I've been. I mean, that's the thing is like I'm I'm kind of jumping between roguelikes and things on on Steam, okay. <laughs> uh, back and forth uh, quite often. Um, but yeah, Doom Doom Eternal, and before that, I had played Control, which I really enjoyed. But I think those are those are the major ones that jump out right now. Nice. Yet to delve into Control. Not sure what platform to play it on because I'm about to upgrade my PC, so I'm hesitant. Because after I do that, I thought well, that would be a good game to show off. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably yes it is a gorgeous game i know i i didn't play it with the uh the rtx right i did because i didn't have the i don't have the graphics card for that but uh it, yes if you're upgrading your pc and then you can test that out that's i think that's a good first use case indeed um haven't upgraded in eight years my friend well the graphics wow. card is a 1060 so that's been upgraded about three years ago so do you have to crank the computer to turn it on uh there is a th- there is a kind of like a crank on the front, yeah, with a little engine and there's the smoke <laughs> everywhere. No, the processor is eight years old, but it was an i7. And uh, those things are incredible. Um, four core i7. So, yeah. um, and I, I did buy it in the purpose of I won't have to upgrade it for five years, eight years later. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but people, every time I tried to upgrade, I said, Why? 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 Oh, okay. But eventually I'm thinking, this is getting ridiculous. And when I started doing streaming and videos, um, the streaming was fine. It was just when I was doing videos, it's just like, why are you taking so long to render? Oh, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) So, good. Right. Well, that's the end of the first half. Let's go into the second half, where we delve deep into Dreamscape.
So, Ian, mm-hmm. before we could actually delve deep into Dreamscaper, can you tell us, what is it? Sure. Uh, Dreamscaper is an action RPG roguelite. Uh, it follows a story of Cassidy. She's a young woman who has recently moved from uh, her hometown to a new city uh, in order to um, uh, deal with some trauma in her past uh, and try to escape that and, and start fresh. Uh, where she's finding that some of these things are 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 still weighing on her and have, have caught up to her. So uh, as a player, you'll be going through both Cassie's dreams and uh, her waking life. And in her dreams, you you'll explore these uh, different um, uh, you know dreamscapes or biomes, landscapes that are reflective of Cassidy's past and her history. Um, and then during the day, you'll be meeting with people in Red Haven, this, the new city that she's in. Uh, you'll be forging relationships with them. There's there's this kind of as, as we talked about before this um, persona or Fire Emblem esque kind of relationship simulator element going on where you get to learn more about who Cassidy is, who these characters are as you build these relationships. And in doing so, uh, this helps Cassidy get further into her dreams and and deal with her own issues. So you'll see uh, um, this kind of um, symbiotic relationship developing between uh, what you do in the dreams and what you do in the waking world and how they kind of empower both sides. That's a lovely sort of interaction between the two and and, uh... You know, it's um, there's no spinning tops in this game, just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I had to make the reference. But uh, if I didn't, one of the listeners would have said, "Chris, you should have." Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is, and we're going to delve into that whole um, issue of dealing with inter interpersonal relationships and that mm-hmm. side of the game, but. And it's a great, succinct sort of description of it. Good luck, I thought to myself, because I wouldn't be able to... Well, I would, but I'd just go on for a paragraph or two rather than a succinct one or two sentences. So well done with that. Um, Thank you. It's been um, a lot of practice yeah. <laughs> when you're in an indie studio where you kind of have to think, okay, how would I describe this? But you can appreciate that we can't talk about Dreamscaper or any game in great detail, especially the design aspects of understanding what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. What it is was what, and I thought the best person to do. I can have, like I said, I could do that. And I've actually been situations where the developers or guests have said, Well, I don't know, Chris, what do you think it is? And that's great. Mm. It's like they want to hear what I think it is. And you still get it right. But uh, we all got our own takes on things. Sure. So the first question I have, design question, proper one. One thing that struck me most, and I've been replaying the, 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 the demo that's currently out there and uh, before, because we record the time of recording, everyone, where the game has not released early access properly yet. Um, so, but this is all based on my experience with a very long and detailed demo. It's great. Um, the combat in Dreamscaper is you somehow, I don't know how you did this, um, um, design or something or experience, I don't know. You somehow add weight, actual weight. Or a feeling of weight to the melee weapons. Every swing, every swipe, as he feels like what, as you, it just feels like it's got heft to the the weapons. Mm-hmm. How did you do that? Tell us how you did that. Well, uh, first off, thank you. I'm very happy to hear that because we spent a lot of time on that, and then I'm also happy to talk about it because it is one of my favorite. Uh, for better or worse, favorite parts of uh, developing a game is the the kind of the quote unquote juice 
uh, which, which is it's referred to oftentimes in the industry. Um, and I do think that is kind of a blessing and a curse for our studio is that we are very good at presentation, um, uh, sometimes uh, above all other things. And very early on, we spent quite a bit of time crafting uh, what how the combat feels um, before delving into some of the more systemic things, uh, the systemic design things. So to be, I guess, to be a little more specific on on how we do that. Um, so first off is animation. That's probably the biggest thing. Uh, you know, I, do, I had never done character animation before Dreamscaper, but it, it was a great opportunity and kind of a calculated risk because I had done motion graphics for so many years. And I was so familiar with animation, you know, in a 2D sense or, or a 3D uh, on 3D programs, but, you know, final frame type thing. There's no interactivity, uh, no character movement. So over the course of the project, our animation has gotten or I should say my animation has gotten better and better. I've, I've learned more. Uh, so having uh, animation that has uh, the, that follows the 12, you know, quote unquote, the 12 principles of animation that has good follow through, has good wind up. Um, it, it, you know, makes all these things feel like the, there's, there's weight behind your, your impact. Um, and then the other component of it is uh, with, with the hit itself and all the things that we do around the hit. And I think, if you if you look through almost any game in the genre that does melee combat, you'll see a lot of these same things. So things like hit stop, uh, where as the weapon hits, there's a, a very slight time dilation where time pauses to really sell the hit. Uh, there's visual effects are huge. Um, you know how how does that uh, that that hit is it communicated visually that it, it sparks or this kind of or maybe an animate type flash or or what have you. Uh, we also do a screen shake, um, and at having a, a strong kind of right in the balance between something that is you don't want something too oppressive because you're shaking the screen too much constantly. Uh, some players get fatigued from that, or they just don't you know makes them sick. And on the other side, if you don't have that, sometimes you lose some of that the weight the, the feeling that um, you're really connecting. And then the one other thing uh, I'm thinking on uh, if, is there anything else on the visual side? Uh, the, the other thing, I think the big thing is audio. So having really convincing hits, and that, that is actually a, uh, an area that we've improved upon a lot in the last six months as we, we hired someone to do, uh, this, uh, to do audio design, sound design for us, which has greatly helped because that's kind of the other half of the puzzle where we had strong visuals, but none of us had a background in sound design. So uh, that, that has helped quite a bit. Yeah, this shows. This really feels like, Every time I hit a button or was engaged or about to launch an attack, I felt that if this hit makes contact, it's going to feel like it makes contact. And I'm <laughs> talking about outside the ram rumble and tactile. And no, it's not. That's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the whole element, the whole that the sound you write very important. The deep rumble and the, the reverb and all that sort of stuff. I'm not an expert in it, but I do appreciate it when it's done well. And also the, the visuals. Which leads me on to my next question. Um, when engaging enemies in Dreamscaper, one of the things I found very quickly, and you did an excellent job of the tutorial to explain this, and which again, design of tutorials and creation of which are is, is a torture in of itself. Yes. Which I'm sure you appreciate. But because you have to regress and also think about what do I need to know if I didn't know anything about this game? Which is much much more difficult than people realise. This is why most board game manuals are terrible. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so, um, 
going back to the point, really, when you're engaging in an enemy, the player needs to examine where they are, what they're doing relative to the enemy they're engaging with, and they have to alter their behaviour accordingly. What have you done to inform the player or to advertise this to the player that they really should be thinking about where they are and what they're doing uh, before they actually engage? These are all split-second decisions, but we do it all the time in games like Street Fighter or, or Starcraft and stuff like this. You know, we can actually react very, very quickly, some more quicker than others, especially when you're younger, um, to actually engage with, with these enemies. So what do you think Dreamscaper does to uh, advise the player that maybe they should try something different. Sure, yeah. Um, well, first, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, give credit to uh, Rob. The, he's he's our engineer on the pro- uh, project, and he's you know he he also moonlights as a designer. So the tutorial is really his his baby, and he did such a fantastic job on it. And, and like you said, it it is like a labor of love, but also tedium. There is, it's not always the sexiest thing to do, but um, making a good tutorial is is crucial. <laughs> Uh, and then, in terms of your question, um, yeah, I think there's there's quite a few things. Uh, it almost it harkens back a little bit to what we we're talking about in Doom, where there's a puzzle aspect to it. You know, wh- how, what targets do you prioritize, and and how do you approach an encounter? So when I'm thinking about um, setting up the enemies and and also their tools, usually it starts with okay, I I, I do a high-level plan of here are the kind of encounters that I would want to have uh, for the player, and and what types of enemies will we need to and, and, and across what breadth and what tools do these enemies have in order to create a, a compelling and interesting and dynamic experience each time a player enters a room. So once those things are broken down and then those pieced together, then uh, you know you basically I'm creating these these different enemies in. Um, kind of in isolation and then pairing them up and seeing what combinations with an idea in mind of how they can work together. So for specifically for like the moment to moment combat, uh, there's a, a, we try to give the enemies tells. Each enemy has some sort of tell, whether it's an audio tell or a visual one and both, uh, hopefully most of the time, uh, so that players can establish uh, okay, this enemy is going to be attacking in this way. And from having played uh, over time, one of the joys of these games is, is learning um, the systems and learning how to adapt to these different situations. So you learn which enemies need to be prioritized first. Maybe you have a ranged enemy, and because it's standing off the screen, kind of throwing at you over and over, you're like, well, I, I probably should not ignore him for X amount of time. I should, I should go for that character first. Or one of the other, um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to encounter it, but there's an enemy that uh, supports other enemies. So it buffs them. And uh, if you, if you, we do a couple things to make sure that you don't take it out last. So the first thing is that enemy uh, heals other enemies. So while you're fighting them, they're actively being healed, which makes it, makes the fight go on longer. It makes it harder to deal with a mob of enemies. Um, and if you are, were to take out all the other enemies aside from, the, uh, uh, the the support enemy, then it turns to offense, and its offense is, is quite challenging. So it, we're trying to incentivize the players to kind of think about combat situations as puzzles in a lot of ways, and to select certain pieces to deal with um, and prior- prioritize. I call it taking out the caster. Take out the caster. Mm-hmm. Just like, I like that Baldur's Gate. First one, like, what are you going to do? Where's the caster? There it is. Take it out. 
or her out or them them out. Just just the healer or the caster, they're the first to go. Um and uh, Yeah, absolutely. As a long time WoW player, I was I was a healer. I was a heal bot. I was a white fully blazing white priest. That, <laughs> that was my job. And uh was being You needed to be protected. I've I did, yes. And whenever the DPS people failed that endeavor, like, what are you doing? I didn't say fire <laughs> now, did I? Not now. Oh no, you know you got aggro. Now I've got aggro. oh great. Good job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you're when you're the last line of defense, when you're the backbone of the team, yeah, you do you you kind of have the uh, the last say there. Yeah, and yeah, thankless thankless job as well. Uh, I'll just never forget yelling at the tank. Just hit it. <laughs> <laughs> do your job. Do your job. Never lead a raid by the priest. I did it once. Never again. Because <laughs> um, they wouldn't listen. They said, "What do you know about hitting things? Doesn't matter. You just hit it." So. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. I just love that dynamic, love that interaction. It's been around for decades. It's fine. It's great. But we can build on that and layer and put layer upon layer, and that's what we've got now. So we should celebrate that. And I just wanted to talk about that in Deemscaper because it's wonderful how you've done that. Uh, and uh, it's, it was sort of, I just like, oh, yeah, there, there it is. Ignore those things. You can deal with them in a minute. Just take that out. So that's mm-hmm. to go. Now, visuals. The visuals in Deemscaper are... Really, really impressive. It's very, very, very stylized for obvious reasons. Maybe it's not. Because you have two worlds. You have the real world, or the world of the character resides in, uh, but also the world that she imagines in her mind. In her mind. And mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time in there as this, 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 this uh, fighting individual. And um, the, it's basically a non-reality. And I want to ask, how have you found, how has this influenced the design of the beings and the creatures within it more than the actual environments? The environments are a reflective of the real world. You see cars and vans and roads and things. So there's mm. like, it's, it's a kind of reflection on reality, but isn't. It's distorted. But how has that bled into the design of the creatures she encounters? Yeah, the uh, so I yeah again I have to give credit uh, to uh, Paul, who does all the environment art and the character art, and uh, just done an, an absolutely amazing job. You know, speaking of masters of the craft, Paul is just an incredible artist. Uh, so, as far as the enemies go, or the other the other uh, the other characters in the dreams, um, that was definitely one of the challenges on the project was kind of bridging. The, an, an art style with what, what we want to do with the enemies on the design side. Uh, so there was a lot of time spent thinking about how would Cassidy imagine these enemies, and because of we have kind of this um, uh, this Paul Paul calls it like a simplified realism. This this art style that is it has uh, shades of reality. It's not cartoon like, but it's also not realistic. It kind of falls somewhere in the middle. Um, what can we do with these these enemies, and where do we draw inspiration from? So, for many of the enemies, a lot of the the inspiration comes from uh, a, a, well, first off, uh, emotion that Cassidy is feeling, and how these things embody uh, uh, different emotions for Cassidy, and then what types of things would work in a, in a fantastical sense, but also in almost in a, a realistic sense, because we have to kind of bridge the gap uh, because that's kind of just the tone of the game that we have. It's not, it's not completely fantastical. It does have a grounding in reality. 
So there was a lot of inspiration that we looked at of kind of surrealist work and um, and masks, you know, hiding of identities. So there's a lot of things that you'll see in the enemies where they have representations of of different uh, masks that apply to their um, their class. I'm putting that kind of in air quotes, right? If someone's like a melee class or a range class, and how would those things relate to uh, you know this this uh, mask like identity for them? Um, and then there was there's one other thing I wanted to mention about that. Uh, I'm sure it will come to me as we're talking. <laughs> oh, well, it, it may feed into the second half of the second the, set, the the last question I have, which is this question is split into two. That's why I said second half. But um, Dreamscaper deals with difficult topics related mm-hmm. to mental illness and interpersonal relationships. Um, it's important that the medium does cover these issues um and over the last 10 years i'm happy to say that this has become more and more of a thing that people mm-hmm. realize that you know more and more i'll say this i've said this it's been a while since i've said it but we need more people making video games that have no interest in star wars um, mm-hmm. and there's a it's a glib comment but basically uh, the more diverse we are the, the stronger the medium becomes i just want to ask how have you found or what have you done to deal with these very difficult yet important subjects with sensitivity. Yeah, that that has also been another one of the challenges, and and we are hyper aware of how we are portraying things and 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 what characterizations could mean for someone who is playing through this game. Um, I think that's that, so. The comment that you made about you know the. Uh, uh, we need less people who have a massive influence from Star Wars making games. Is uh, and I I I get that, and I also think that for us, the types of stories that now as we're getting older, the types of stories that we want to see are a little bit different than what we might have enjoyed when we were younger. Um, so that that is a lot where a lot of this inspiration comes from because we wanted something that connected with our lives and experiences that we've had. But at the same time, I I, I mean I'm. It, shameless that it, there is a power fantasy here to it there is kind of a, a juvenile like you're getting power you're fighting monsters thing but uh, i think both can be true at the same time you can have something that has heavier um uh, uh more weighty topics to it and also still feel satisfying to play and enjoy and that's why we try to bring those two things together and during the process uh research is a big one you know making sure uh we're researching and uh, talking with people so that we're not being uh, not misrepresenting. Um, and then the other is uh, we hired uh, a writer, Kathy Jones, who has been doing a fantastic job for the uh, with the dialogue, and that has helped a lot too to have uh, to bring in other perspectives uh, so that we have a, a better understanding of the source material or so, by source material I mean the inspiration I should say um, and, and what we want uh, and, what, and how how we can convey our message in a way that feels real and authentic. I think for me, my personal takeaway of what I've experienced and what I've read and, and seen uh, of the the real world aspect, the interpersonal relationship aspect of Dreamscaper is it's anchored around empathy, mm-hmm. which is extremely powerful and people don't give it enough credit where it's due. And you've done that. You've understood it Oh. It's that. Yeah, it always is. Uh, and I think that's really 
really powerful and it's just wonderful to to see these one minute you're going around sort of destroying you know taking over the world being like i say a power fantasy but that's not the real world the real world is you just doing you know like getting by some of us aren't mm-hmm. just getting by we're shooting from the stars and stuff like that it's great but yeah you're just you know uh, doing what you can helping others as well while hopefully while you're doing your thing but uh and it's a it's a wonderful. I'm not going to say dichotomy because that's a it's not the one and the same. There is actually it's just a, a juxtaposed. It's probably a better way to say it, and it puts one in relief of the other. What really matters here? What's really important? And, and I think that it's interesting that you touched on that because for us it's hard to justify sometimes the ludo narrative dissonance that you get in modern games, where you want to tell a powerful and compelling story. Uh, but then you have the main character going off and killing a bunch of things. So uh, there, there is there is a very purposeful split uh, with this being the fiction of dreaming that Cassidy is doing these things, this uh, the combat and violence in her dreams. Where, uh, like you said, it, it gets it gets there is a grounded part to this game, and that doesn't feel too overtly fantastical or break from the narrative, even though they are juxtaposed. We hope that they end up working together in conjunction and, and don't feel uh, too tonally disparate. No, I, I, uh, I, I what you just described there is the, the uncharted syndrome where mm. uh, ultimately Nathan Drake is, is a mass, you know, just he's one man killing machine. of killed hundreds of people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, across the adventures. And people go, has anyone, people have brought, brought this up. Like, it's just a bit, it's, no one says he's, <laughs> and it's just like that unanswered question, like, and you just the retort, and it's, again, I've used the word glib a lot on this show, but uh, the retort is, it's video games. Yeah, uh, did you play Berserk? Oh, it's true. They're robots. Stand up. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, it starts from all that, and it's the, the, the act of violence, the destructive aspect of it, and uh, you, what you hear is you're building on someone's mental health, while at the same time addressing their demons. But their demons aren't just, you know, metaphorical. They're actually in her mind. They're actually, um, they're real, uh, mm-hmm. and to her, and indeed, someone who's personally suffered from historically from mental illness, they can be, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, the, the depression, the, the black dog or Labrador that's uh, always around, and you mm-hmm. have to face that. And I've personally faced it many years ago, but it's never gone. It's always mm-hmm. there. And you just have to... And this, for me, that's what I... I had to ask this question. Um, there's many other design questions we could have gone into. Uh, like the the, 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 the the progression tree and the skill tree. We could have gone into that. But I think this is more important. No offence mm-hmm. to the design of those aspects of the game. But the fact that you've gone into that realm and, and did the, asked the hard questions, you could have just shied off. You could have gone, you know what, this is too uncomfortable. Let's just not do this. Let's just go for a traditional, you know... Roguelike would be fine, no one will mind. Mm-hmm. But no, you just stuck to your guns. And I, praise, uh, I applaud you for that. So thank you. Well, thank, yeah, thank you. Um, the, you know, it is interesting because the, uh, a part, a lot of part, you know, going back to your, your initial question is how do you deal with these things with sensitivity? Uh, a lot of it does come back to how, what themes are you trying to present and what is the resolution? And um, I, I guess not. To, to try not to give too much away, but the ultimate end goal of the game 
for Cassidy or where she ends up is not going to be a place of, oh, my depression is quote unquote cured. It's, uh, or these issues I'm dealing with, they're cured. It's that I've developed a set of tools that I can uh, operate and, and function in a more healthy manner. And I think that trying to look at it from that perspective has helped a lot in, in how we uh, have formatted our narrative and how we'll continue to do so during early access. Absolutely. And mental health is not the same as getting a paper cut on your thumb. Right. You know, it, it, that heals. It hurts, annoyingly. Uh, but it, it will heal. Physically, you will heal and you forget about it and you forgot it even happened. Uh, but when it comes to mental illness, it's nothing visual, but uh, it, it has varying degrees. So, and again, I think you've done an excellent job of addressing it and then really asking people to think about these things objectively. And also in a, in a medium of video games, which, which the thing about video games is not very really good at nuance because they're based, it's a video game, therefore a computer is a series of switches. Take a drink, everyone, I said it there. Um, which, you know. Is that a binary. common phrase? It's a common phrase in this show, it is, yeah. Uh, I do talk about how what, what you're doing is really just uh, every, every phrase, everything you're doing is still if and or. You know, it's still Boolean logic. It's still that. It's still just one or zero. Um, yes, it's layered. Yes, it's, you've got layers upon layers. But when it boils down to it, it still is just that right now. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, one last thing about this. Um, yes. uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar. Uh, there is, I guess he's, he's more of a, he's a game critic, but he's also like a video essayist. Uh, Aaron Signal, this guy Campster. Um, and he has uh, a, a talk that he does about violence in video games and why it's so prevalent. And it, it's exactly what you you mentioned. Because games are serious, because computers simulate things in a certain way, it is a lot easier to do things like spatial computation, to say, let's put this person in space and they can move around and do these things, uh, not just in terms of what the computer can compute, but also in terms of how we interact with things. Uh, it becomes a lot more direct and simplified than if you were to, say, make a game where you have a bunch of or you know, authentic characters who you talk to. That's so much more challenging um, to create and simulate than something like you know, moving from point A to point B. Yeah. Yeah, it is, because humans are or any sentient being, is complicated. And we just don't, we're unpredictable. And uh, whereas current computers, I mean, I'm, I'm projecting forward and binary computers will eventually be replaced, I assume. Um, then, you know, things that, that you're right. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, I'll have to look up that essay um, to, to for our own uh, edification. But uh, yeah, uh, it's just, yeah, interestingly, the earliest uh, video game, is Pong, one of the earliest, not the earliest, but one of the earliest. And that mm -hmm. wasn't violent. Um, no. It was just tennis. <laughs> but uh, or, or table tennis. Yeah, it's table tennis. But, yeah, interesting. Interesting. Right. Well, uh, Dreamscaper by Afterburner Studios. What's the name? Where did the name of the studio come from, by the way? We love asking this question. Uh, after much searching, we, we landed on Afterburner Studios. Uh, be, because I think we felt that we all operate in uh, the three of us operate in a similar manner. It, you know, like we'll often uh, afterburner, as in like the a planes afterburners, like you kick them on to give you that final thrust past right. the finish line or, or that extra boost of speed. Um, so we felt that we connected with that in in some in some ways. 
That's second wind. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Happens to some people. Some people will allegedly have third winds. They're lying. <laughs> Um, that's 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 in a that's in a fugue state. They think, oh yeah, I've got the no, no. You just you just you dreamt that. Um, there's your spinning top. There you go. The see, it's not going, is it? See, so um, but no. Anyway, um, so at the time of recording, um, Dreamscape is not currently out, but it'll be four or five weeks before we release. So I would assume, Ian, it's out for access to Windows PC by then. Yes. Yeah, so, so if you are, I'm just checking my calendar right now. If yeah. you are. Uh, releasing this in yeah. one, a month from now. In a month from now, yeah. then yes, the Dreamscaper will be out on August fourteenth. If it's not out, um, and uh, yeah, uh, I hope uh, if yeah, if this is out by then, then then please give it a check it out and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. see see if you you like it. There's there's also a prologue available where you can mm-hmm. play a, a subsection of the content of the game and um, yeah, see if you enjoy it. Yeah, and uh, is that the only platform that's coming out on for now? Currently, now? Steam yeah. is what's going to be out uh, in August, but right. then we are planning on releasing. We were in the Nintendo uh, showcase back in December, um, slightly pre- premature, <laughs> but we will be out on Switch. Um, I, I don't have a date for anyone, unfortunately. No, I just, I just need to alert people that it will be arriving on a Nintendo-related console very soon. Correct. There you go. That's all we can say. Uh, one of the Marvel Marvelous Machine that is currently my Animal Crossing machine, but it's still great. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there's other things you can play on it. Apparently, yeah, apparently. Um, so, uh, Ian, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Um, been a fantastic guest and a very open and honest one. We did ask to cover some difficult topics, but they're important ones to cover uh, because hey, you started it. What I'm saying. <laughs> um, and you're more than welcome to come back. Because, uh, you know, we've had a lot of return guests over the years because the show's been going for so long that, look, oh, I've made a new thing five years later. Um, mm-hmm. So you're more than welcome to come back, whatever that may be. But in the meantime, thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. This was a lot of fun. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, canonrince.com.